0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, and today I'll be speaking with David Crowley and Susan Reed. They are the editors of a trilogy of books that explore everyday life and socialism. Their final installment, Pleasures and Socialism Leisure and Luxury in the Eastern Bloc, has been published by Northern University Press. How are you doing today, David and Susan? Very well, thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to hear that. Glad to hear both your voices there. Uh, it's really a pleasure to have you folks here today. I've been so excited about the books you wrote ever since someone told me about them. And uh, it's, you know, it's a very different kind of uh, interview because you didn't write everything in the books the way most of the interviews that we do are. But uh, I think that the three books you did, including the most recent one, which is the... Um, Pleasures of socialism that were is the main excuse for talking to you today have been so enlightening that uh, I'd like to hear first about how did you both get interested in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union and how did you get interested in
1: consumerism and everyday life, Susie? Why don't you go first? Uh, um, well, I studied Russian at school, so I, I was already interested in it at that point, and I, I suppose it was because it was just such a An unknown place. I I mean, at that time, I'm talking about the 60s, you know, nobody, well, by the time I learned Russian, it was 70s. But um, nobody really went uh, to Russia. Uh, But my father did go when I was quite little. And he went uh, to a conference of psychologists um in the at the end of the 1960s and he went to Czechoslovakia at that time and he came back with all sorts of interesting souvenirs uh, from his trips and i think that you know as quite a young child i got interested in, in it at that point and and you david
2: well um i i suppose i i went to poland first in the 1980s um as a student um on a on a, a short scale exchange, and that was a kind of fairly exciting thing. Again, Poland seemed a a kind of rather distant um, and even slightly, dare I say, exotic world. It was just after martial law, and uh, it seemed to offer a kind of a whole set of interesting and kind of problematic questions to me that uh, I wanted to explore and to have the opportunity to to go back. So I I got a scholarship in eighty seven, and then again in eighty nine um after i did my first degree um as a a sort of researcher just and i spent some time there and it was a it was a kind of extraordinary moment for me i I can well imagine particularly in
0: 1989 uh we missed each other i was in warsaw in 1985-86
2: ah so you were just a year ahead of me
0: yeah i guess um but uh you know i was and i that was really the Pivotal m- moment in my life as well. Although I, there's a my father didn't visit the Soviet Union or anything like that. But as a young child, he um, had read an article about Siberia, and uh, had me taught me a, a, in a kind of um, Pavlovian way. When he would ask, "Where is it cold?" I would say, Om Yakon. No, no I say Yakutsk, and he would say, "Where is it coldest?" And I would say, "Omyakon." <laughs> so. Uh, the interest and the exoticness that you're describing as well, Susan, is a bit I'm quite familiar with. Uh, yes. Now, did you? What was your disciplines at this point? Were you both historians, or were you
1: art historians? Um, well, well, I started off in modern languages. I, uh, I, I, I did Russian and German at university. Having spent a year doing fine art, in fact, but uh, I then shifted to do languages. Uh, but I went, I went to do my PhD in America, and I did that on art history. Okay, I was trained as
2: the design historian, which is a kind of specialism, I suppose, broadly within art history. But um, design history had a particular preoccupation or does have a preoccupation with ordinary things. So it has some of the methods of art history, but a kind of focus often on buildings or on material culture of everyday life. And then that's,
0: you know, these two influences bring you together to think about high politics and resistance to socialism, you know, or getting away from high politics, rather, and resistance to socialism. I mean, that was so standard at the time.
2: Yeah, I think Susie and I probably first met, um, maybe in the context of art historians conferences in Britain, um, where I think. Uh, Thinking about Eastern Europe was always seen as a kind of uh, something on the edge, a little bit marginal and a kind of fringe activity. Um, And I think some of our interests as well in everyday life, in questions of design, in questions of how people use their material world also seemed um, perhaps a little marginal to art historians. And I think in some ways that may be where we met, but the, the interest in our work has really come from other fields come from social and political historians anthropologists people working in literary studies so i hope susie would agree but it seems to seems to me that we've been able to move between different disciplinary fields because of this interest in in, in material culture
1: yeah. yes i completely agree i think i, I couldn't put it better myself and it, and yet at the same time i think that the fact that we both come from uh, visual studies it is important that uh, I suddenly take my cue from the visual and that's why I first got interested in these things. Um, on top of always having been more interested in social, cultural history, I was never very interested at all in uh, political history, but I was always interested in things like you know, how people dressed and what the houses were like and the, what kind of pots and pans they used and things like that. So I always had that interest in the more um, archaeological, anthropological sort of aspects of the past. Um but but the reason I got fascinated in the particular kind of things that we began to, to look at was images and seeing uh, illustrations in Soviet magazines that were kind of intriguing and didn't fit with the standard ways in which the Soviet Union was discussed at the time. And now you've, I
0: mean, it really seems to be you've been on, you were on the cutting edge because now everyone's talking about material culture in this way. I mean, with the, with the hundred... Uh, Uh, you know, know, the history of the world in a hundred objects and things. Uh, You know, it's been enlightening to me when I first read your book, and I continue to be enlightened the more I listen to people talk about um, material culture. So getting back to your uh, trajectory, when did you come up then with the idea of the first book, which was Style and Socialism?
1: Um, it was somewhere in the mid 90s. Uh, we actually we met at a conference that was organised at uh, Northumbria University by a colleague of mine, a historian, Tim Kirk. It was an urban culture conference. Um, and that was somewhere like 95, I think. Yeah. So, a very long time ago now. Um, and uh, David gave a very interesting paper there. So, I started talking to him about it. And uh, uh, we just discovered that we were both interested in these aspects to do with material culture and. Um, consumption in the Eastern Bloc and uh, socialist modernity, socialist modernism even, which was a term that nobody else I think was using at the time but we both had this understanding that that was really a very exciting thing to look at.
2: And it took a little while I think to get the first publication together because we um, spent some time I suppose trying to establish a kind of network of people who had some common interests, maybe not exactly exactly mirroring our own. Um, but when you look at the first book that we put together, um, it it has really quite a diverse range of um, scholarly interests, style and socialism. So it has work by people who might ostensibly describe themselves as economic historians. Um, Mark Pittaway, um, sadly who's died, um, would describe himself, I think, perhaps as a labor historian. But we could find a commonality of interests in this question about uh, really what does material culture do in, in terms of people's lives? And, uh, and also this kind of question about how do these states articulate some kind of difference, some kind of political difference or not through their material culture? And the question about modernity sits at the heart of that.
0: One of the things that I noticed about the books and you know as I went back and was reviewing everything that from the very outset you've always had uh, historians from the region as well included or not well scholars I should say rather than historians, uh, who have been included as part of it as equals,
2: and that's been nice too. Yeah, I mean maybe Susie would say something about this, but um, one of the most impactful essays in the first book is by Yuri Gerchuk. Um, Susie, perhaps would you fill in his background because it's very interesting.
1: Uh, yes, Yurik Gudkov was, um, uh, was a Soviet, a, a Russian uh, art historian, design historian, which is quite a rare breed in the Soviet art historical establishment. Um, and uh, he he wrote both as a participant uh, and retrospectively. So he he uh, I'd met him and I found him very interesting while I was. Uh, doing my own research in in moscow and um he he was conducting archival research at the time uh, but combining it with his own memories of um, the developments in the 1950s and 60s when he was one of the editors of the main design journal um decorative nauk and uh, he was a, an editor of that right from its founding in 1957 until it ended with the end of the Soviet Union. So he was in a very good position to comment. Um, And as David says, that that essay is one that has been used uh, probably more than anything else in the whole book.
2: So the one end of the spectrum, you have this essay that really kind of combines the perspective of the present, but also powerful memory. I think the other thing we've tried to do, and this is more apparent in the later books, is to draw in younger scholars, people who you know, come from the regions that we're preoccupied with, the former Eastern Bloc. And what's so evident is the talent of of younger scholars who are coming through who uh, are very preoccupied with the same questions that we are, and they do uh, really very, I think, serious and significant primary research. So to be able to, I think in a way, create three books that have this function of drawing, being able to put different voices before an academic community, I think if if I might say, has been the thing that I'm most proud of.
1: Yes, and me too. Yes, I quite agree. And it was always, it was always an important uh, aim of the, well, from the start with the first book, just to create a forum and also not to be too directive. We really wanted the diversity of different kinds of approaches and different kinds of voices. So we tried not to be too heavy handed as editors, but to really facilitate what people were trying to say.
2: Yeah, and so an essay, for me, a very powerful essay, was written by uh, Katerina Garasimova yes. in um, the Soviet communal apartment. And uh, this is a really fantastic piece of scholarship that she did, really about the, the life of the communal apartment at the, at the end of the Soviet Union and, in, and into the so-called new world. And uh, methodologically, intellectually, and in terms of research, it's a, it's a really fantastic piece of scholarship. It taught me a lot. I
0: remember enjoying it. I haven't had a chance to get back to that particular uh, uh, essay. But, uh, no, I, it was it, all of the, these, just these views of, of the world, You know, the shopping that you dealt with in your piece, mm-hmm. I, I was particularly struck with, and I actually used with students, uh, undergraduate students, to get them to think Thank about you. their own shopping. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> now, did that start as a
2: conference, or did you just go straight in to write, uh, to put it together as a book? Well, we've often in the course of the years organized modest events, um, open events, public events, but not necessarily grand conferences, because clearly by bringing together scholars, bringing together different expertise, and of course, look at the geography of these books as well. They're really quite wide ranging. Um, you, you get so much more by bringing people to the same space. So. We've done that on a number of occasions, and that's really been a kind of a, a way, sort of part of our editorial process, really, is to, is to somehow know these scholars, work with them. And, and we ha- wouldn't make a claim on a community, but we can see other projects have become, that have become spin-offs because of those relationships that have formed at those events. Yeah. yeah. How did you then,
0: was, the, was there a direct line from the style in socialism? Did the are the, two socialist spaces, which was the second book in the series?
1: <laughs> we, we, we had the idea, it really did form while we were finishing Style and Socialism, I think. Uh, I think we began to feel there were all sorts of different directions and questions that we hadn't yet finished with. And uh, it was just really as we were completing the introduction the final version of the introduction to Style and Socialism. That we came up with this and realized that uh, that we had to. Uh, I think both of us were exhausted with doing style, style and Socialism, and yet we realized we had to do this second volume, the Social Spaces. Is that right, David? Is that how yeah,
2: you... I think that's very true, and I think that also led to the third volume in a way. We could see these kind of um, these these questions that emerged through the process of our own writing and thinking that um, one book couldn't answer, and it there's been a, a fairly organic relationship between the three books. I think, as I said, they form a kind of in, interesting body of knowledge. How would you briefly, for our audience who hasn't had
0: the pleasure of looking at the books, uh, characterize the themes of style and socialism versus socialist spaces? Obviously, we'll come back to pleasures and socialism in a bit.
2: Um, my feeling is really that style and socialism it is... It was the first attempt to try and think about um, the role of material culture and to some extent um, the aesthetics of modernity in relation to the ideological priorities of of the states in Eastern Europe but also the interests of consumers. Um, It's quite wide-ranging as a book. It, It contains material that I think... From a classic material culture perspective, it's a little unusual to encounter. Material culture is the subject, certainly in Britain, is very closely allied to anthropology and is well developed here. Now, in our book, we, in the first book, there, there's an essay on uh, cartoons, and it doesn't really focus on the materiality of the cartoon, but it's very interested in what a cartoon does in the world. And I think that's a, a key question for anybody working with material culture. What does this thing that's before us, it might be a table, a chair, a building, a monument, what does it do in the world? What kind of social relations form around it? But the first book has a kind of breadth that's really trying to say there is a lot of potential in this field, whereas the second book narrows its focus a little bit and thinks more specifically about space and about the ways in which space allows or encourages certain sorts of social relationships and political ones or inhibits them, and quite often the book has a, a, a kind of a line that I think we, we, we have in a lot of our scholarship, which is it explores kind of counterintuitive positions and perspectives. So one of the essays in the second book by Mark Speed um, looks at a, a building, a pavilion for an international exhibition that was to represent the Soviet Union, And really explores how it represented a certain sort of intellectual dismantling of the Soviet Union. So it kind of reverses the expectations that one might have of that particular space. So there's a sense of um, clarity and focus in the second book that I think also represents the scholarship in these fields. That when we started doing this work in the 90s, the, the scholarship didn't have as many models or paradigms to work with. But over time... Uh, the scholarship, as it speaks to itself, becomes richer,
1: more complex and has better tools to work with. Would you agree, Susie? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes, in, indeed. And I, th- I think that relationship between the two volumes is exactly right. That The, the second one was was more focused. The first one was really to... to uh, uh just make this well to make the statement that we needed to look at these issues, um, and we we couldn't yet. We didn't really yet know who was out there working on on things until we began to work on that particular volume. By the social spaces, we had a clearer idea, and there just were more people who were um, involved in that kind of work. But the but the focus with I mean with all three, uh, we, it was always important that we kept uh, objects and images. Uh, And although not every single essay or every single author uh, really did that to the same extent, it was still the kind of core of what we were trying to do so that we weren't writing generally about consumption or about um, uh, uh, about synthetics or whatever else, but really to have a sense of of how those particular materials and images circulated and, and functioned and were used. The
0: images, yeah, there's lots of those, of course, are not going to be able to see them. There's lots of great pictures in these books, uh, which is a nice change from a lot of scholarly books as well. And they do exactly convey that. Um, Now... To, I because we don't we have a limited amount of time and I I do want to focus in on the most recent book uh, pleasures and socials I guess for one question I had uh, and actually Mary Neuberger who's a contributor here uh, was wondering as well was how uh, uh, how uh how it took so long for this book to get out you did the first two quite quickly together what happened
1: there. <laughs> Well, the first one did actually take a very long time. It it went through a lot of editing processes and uh, it it took really a number of years. I can't remember how many, but uh, David, would you like to tell the story of why pleasures took so long?
2: (laughs) I'm afraid some of the the reasons for why it took so long are just simply to do the vagaries of the publishing process. Um, You know what it's like when you send... um, a manuscript in, it goes out to readers. Sometimes those readers are very prompt and sometimes they're not so prompt. So I think that's part of the story. I think the other thing that we should say, and, and I, I say this with some delicacy, um, we, we, we took on work that we knew had tremendous qualities, um, sometimes by uh, scholars for whom we had to do a bit of work, sometimes with the English expression, sometimes to help them develop the analytical tools that they were using as well so i don 't think, as editors, we simply passively receive material we 've been very self consciously shaping these books and and to a certain extent, helping the authors shape their essays and Of course, that takes time
1: yes we we did, we did a huge amount of rewriting um, and uh, trying not to impose our own voices on on those essays but but to really try and work out what they're trying to say, so that did take a very, very large amount of time. Um, but we also hit a bad moment in the publishing industry, I think, so it was delayed in that um, because of that as well.
2: Yeah, but we would thank Northwestern University Press, you know, for the great yeah. support that they've given because uh, they booked this practice book very strongly, which is uh, great news. Yes, indeed.
1: Yes. Well,
0: and I, I, and I think many, many other scholars are quite thankful to them as well, as well as to you. <laughs> uh, now, you know, I, get, I think that in some ways, the pleasures in socialism, luxury and, um, and leisure and luxury in the East Block, as the book is called, I think really brings out more than the other two, the extent to which we get a picture of what it was like to live in, uh, you know, what so, thinking about socialism as real socialism and different from our lives, you know, the lives that we grew up in capitalism and, and the assumptions of what is, uh, you know, what is the norm? And um, would you like to pick up on perhaps some of the, the themes or articles that you saw as you see as particularly
1: getting at that? Um, well, first to say that the, whereas uh, uh, David said we tend to take these rather counterintuitive approaches, and so to try and write a book about the Eastern Bloc in terms of leisure and luxury was in the first place. I've, um, uh, I suppose to some scholars uh, or uh, political commentators on the Soviet Union in the past would be throwing down a gauntlet. Uh, it seems quite a challenge to approach the social and cultural life of the uh, uh, the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc if precisely in terms of leisure and luxury when, you know, in general, people see it as in terms of privation and shortage and work. Um, so leisure and luxury were our starting points. Uh, we were interested in leisure and there was some beginning to be some good work uh, on on leisure and youth culture and uh, tourism and that sort of thing. But um, we also wanted luxury because of the object base of luxury, the fact that luxury tends to be due with commodities and things and the way that they the kind of meanings that are attached to those things. Um, so that was our that was our starting point. The the pleasures title actually came later. Um, it was uh, in order to focus on the way that uh, these uh, that both pleasure and luxury are experienced, that you can't that the state couldn't impose meaning on meanings on them. Uh, we wanted to um, refocus on to the way that that different people would use it and make make their own meanings out of it in their own lives. Does that sound right to you, David, as a summary of where we came
2: from? Absolutely. I think the other thing we wanted to do as well was um, in perhaps in the mental horizon of people, when you talk about luxury, certain sorts of objects really emerge very, very strongly. And they're in the book. And that's I think that's important. So fur is in the book. And my and yeah. I, I understand of fur coat as being a form of luxury but I think given that luxury is a relative concept, it always stands in relationship to something which is not luxury. We were, we were interested in objects that might not seem ostensibly to be luxuries. So with, there was some discussion of cigarettes and alcohol. Um, I think we're also very interested in what a luxury looks like in this age of socialist modernity that Susie started our conversation by. Invoking. So the idea that um, synthetic objects, plastic objects, and the discussion of, uh, of uh, cars and objects that really come from the modern world, how might they be understood in terms of, of this discussion around need, want, desire, and pleasure? And that's really centrally important for us. Yeah, I mean, the,
0: again, as,
2: as you say, these cigarettes,
0: that, you know, very plain things, but they're. They are part of life, and I thought the the way that we get it this paradox of cigarettes being so important to the culture, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and yeah, you know, and yet you know, in, in the article there where they're trying to curb the consumption at the same time and thinking about it. Uh, the cars, of course, I think anyone, almost anybody who's ever read about the former uh, uh, Soviet bloc is well aware that cars were not were hard to come by. Uh, and yet, the the stories that come out of that, and how people looked at it, and the desires to change car culture, and their inability—again, this is one of the things that I think comes through all three books—is the state on the one—the state that is trying to rationalize and come up with a rational view of everything, constantly being confronted with its own uh, with the fact that it can't do that, and being unable to think its way out of the problem.
2: Absolutely. I mean, material culture, objects, commodities, goods present this tremendous problem, particularly from the late 1950s onwards, as these states want to demonstrate their modernity. And it's as if the only, not the only, but it's as if one of the major fields in which their claims on the future can be made is through consumer goods. And yet at the same time, within the ideological view of the world that they subscribe to, Consumption presents all sorts of problems about social distinction, about desire and the ego and so on. And this is played out in those objects. It's played out in the discourses of the objects, and occasionally it's played out in the material forms of these objects as well. And that's truly fascinating, and it's an important question for economic historians, social historians, historians of gender, and so on and so on. So it's as if an object can really be somehow... The point to which these pressures are all being brought to bear and that's really what the book uh, attempts to address did you have a thought on that susie and uh,
1: no just just admiring how uh, cogently david put it <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice <laughs> well you know let's talk give some people a flavor of some of the you know the issues that actually get discussed in detail by your uh, participants um you know you have uh, East Germany on uh, on sex and camping, and the the, the way that ero- the erotica was ter- was created as a luxury good. Mm. Uh, that, you know that's that's one angle on that, and then you also have, uh, you, you know, you do have as you mentioned fur. You know, one of the things that you know, as I think about my own experience uh, living in post Soviet Ukraine was, yeah. you know, even the woman who didn't have a full fur coat had at least some little fur around the collar or something. There was always an effort to at least demonstrate some quiet sense of luxury there in, in her coat. And uh, Poland, you know, when you get to that, um, even in 85, what, how fashionable the women were looking. And, you know, there was definitely a clear sense of fashion that was going completely against the grain of what, you know, I mean, we don't talk about it in, uh, in terms of Polish uh, style, but in, you know, certainly the way the Soviet Union was talking about uh, style and fashion uh, in the 1950s with the article on Dior in Moscow.
2: Well, if I could just make a comment about this, um, this, this essay, this very good essay by Tikhomirova on, on fur. I mean, what she does for us as a reader is she, she identifies, as you've just done, this fur coat, and sometimes for her it's a collar or it's a detail. And she asked this question, how did this object find its way into the wardrobe or into the life of, of the woman, or in some cases the man who wore it? And she, I think in a very detailed and precise way, talks through all of the different kind of chains of production and consumption um, in quite a nuanced way that allowed certain sorts of people access to certain sorts of fur objects and other people not. And so what you end up with in the, the smallest thing, like the detail of a collar, is this powerful social picture that describes the social and, and um, status hierarchies in the Soviet Union. And she, she does it by drawing attention to what seems to be a minor or an ostensible detail. And it's a very elegant essay. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: And it, it works nicely as a compliment to Larisa's Zahara's one, the one that you mentioned already on Dior, because uh, Larissa deals more with the uh, the uh, professional designers perspective. So we've got the two the two sides of it, we've got the users and the and the designers. Uh, but in Larissa's case she's she's dealing with how those designers are negotiating the position of being in the Soviet Union, but actually wanting to uh, be fully recognized as fashion designers. Um on an international level, so how they're trying to, um, to assimilate what's going on in the West, uh, but to translate it into the Soviet terms. Uh, but sometimes, actually, they seem to almost forget where they are. Um, you know, In dealing with something like haute couture, uh, how to Sovietize something which is surely appealing only to an elite, um, and uh, she, she deals very subtly with some of those negotiations that the designers had to go through to try and legitimate what they were doing
0: Right, and she gets to that core problem that you know, fashion is all about change and if you're yes. building the Soviet society which is going to be a, a fixed final end it, it it's anathema really to the whole way of thinking about social even as these uh, you know, even a socialism is calling on the gods of uh, of production, uh, but it's only been, it's going to be a fixed production It will be one way and one way. That's all we needed. Although of course there were changes. I mean the original the original uh, Volga looks different than the later Mod Volgas that uh, you can still buy today. I mean
1: there was change. Uh, uh, but- yes. It's- sorry they, they, i mean this this issue about fashion was somewhere something that really intrigued us right from the start from the style and socialism uh, volume that uh, um this sort of paradox that uh, um you know where did fashion fit into this system at all? how could there be stylistic change um and it, that that was something I was already interested in in relation to. Painting, because there was a lot of debate in the 50s about stylistic change. Uh, you know, if, if painting was supposed to be a representation of truth, well, how could it change? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, but also there was, there was uh, concern about how, how come if... Um, if how, how could it be that in the Soviet Union, fashion could be similar to fashion in the West? Why was it not more different Uh, This was a a real problem at the time. Um, You know, if you're trying to catch up and overtake Western standards of fashion, uh, what happens then to having a socialist specificity? A big problem, if it could be achieved. Yes. But uh, so that was the the sort of... uh, uh, the area of negotiation that that uh, designers but also theorists were involved in and um, surely they should have a quite different fashion surely it should, soviet fashion shouldn't look anything like western fashion your thoughts on that david well i'm just thinking as well i mean
2: that one of the kind of questions is where is fashion located um and so Larissa, to a certain extent, is interested in the role of designers and these designers are state-sanctioned. And there's, you know, increasingly very good work on this kind of um, official organization of fashion. It's also something that Ina Merkel describes in her her essay, which focuses on East Germany. Um, But, of course, fashion isn't... Fashionability is not really something that one can decree. And so the books often try and take a kind of um, a bottom-up perspective as well. So in this, in this volume on pleasures and socialism, we have Catherine Lebov's essay, mm-hmm. which looks at the kind of lifestyle choices and the fashionable interests of young people uh, working in, in the new town of Huta in Poland. They're ostensibly the, the young people building socialism in Poland, and yet they're very attracted to Western styles of dress. So their fashionability comes from the, the the kind of social formation that they are themselves. So you get this kind of rather interesting tension, I think, across Eastern Europe between um, a sort of state-sanctioned view of a kind of limited form of fashionability and then the everyday practices of people themselves. Yeah. And there's clearly space for a lot of uh, interesting tension there. Yes, I
0: remember pictures in... Der Spiegel in the 1980s I believe of uh, this is obviously before the wall came down of you know, uh, apartments that were the couple young couple had done all their interior decorating using Western brands you know sort of like there would be a Western brand uh, you know collage of the you know of different soap products and mm-hmm. things yes it's a, it, it was this inescapability, the constant measurement of the West, and the inability to ever see come come to their own. It's a, it's a, it's it's fascinating.
2: Yeah. Although I think we we've tried to push at this from different perspectives. So if I can just give you a, an example of, I think what I hope is is a kind of nuanced position. Because we've tried to work across Eastern Europe, so we're thinking about the People's Republics of Poland and so on, and the Soviet Union, the question about where is the West uh, in a kind of cultural sense is a really interesting one. And when you bring the scholars together, like in the first volume we talked about Jóri Gerchuk, um, when he ha- offers reflections about how did young artists and designers, or perhaps more generally consumers, in the Soviet Union, understand the West. And I mean here some kind of code for for modernity and consumerism. It's not necessarily the West as it might be constructed in kind of Cold War politics. It was very often Polish material, quite literally, to the West of the Soviet Union that provided some kind of models and paradigms. So the kind of the classic East-West dichotomy, we've been trying to break down in some ways by trying to think about different kinds of East-East relationships. And this runs throughout the book. And I think it's something that other scholars have picked up on quite strongly in the work. And it's fantastic to see that being developed in other ways. Yes. Yeah,
0: oh, yes, I, I, I agree entirely. And my wife, you know, is a, she's a former actress uh, based, she, uh, based in Lviv and Ukraine and she's she's said to me many times that the that L- Lviv which of course for Poles is a quintessentially Polish city mm-hmm. was the city that they that was the was the go-to city when film uh Soviet filmmakers wanted to use it,
2: have a European city mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. And, of course, the the role of the Baltic states more generally in the Soviet Union as places associated with leisure or the location of the electronics industries and so on, all of that suggests kind of interesting nuances and differences that really need to be taken into account. And the kind of monolithic pictures that we've inherited from the Cold War, that, you know, sadly still students will kind of bring into class, as it were, those really need to be dismantled. And they are being dismantled by good research. Yes, yeah. No, I don't know if
0: you've seen the, the, the new book on uh, Lviv in the West. Have, have you, have you, it's just come out recently by Har- on Harvard Press by uh, William Rich. It's also going to be, it, it gets to that as well, mm. you know, rethinking. Uh, but uh, getting back to our material culture, um, w- and also, again, this issue of the, of, the, of communist officials and their way of looking at things, it always seems so frequently uh, they uh, articulate wonderful ideas. Uh, The discussion in your article uh, about shopping in Poland, uh, David, it it talks about, you know, they're conceptualizing it should be an educational experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was reading recently David Ogilvie, uh, and he quoted uh, so, some uh, Soviet writer about advertising with praise mm-hmm. uh, about just the, the idea of educating and getting people interested in the product. Uh, and yet, then there was this this disconnect between the ability to talk about it uh, on the one hand as a conception, and then the way the, the store become became a place of real power negotiations, mm-hmm. uh, which is not something you I, I think you talk about too much in the book uh, or, or in your article, but it's certainly one that anyone who had ever gone to been to uh, the former Soviet Union, or in that former East bloc, shall we say, in the era would be familiar with. I mean, it's quite a different story. As a friend of mine in Ukraine said when I showed up, just a couple years after um, been away for two years after the immediately after independence came back and he said, you know, now, now the client is king in the stores and that hadn't been before. Mm. Uh, But it's always, it was there that, that strange power relationship constantly being there uh, was part of that. And yet they were articulating it originally the idea behind it. Yes. You have a desk so the person can show it to you. You can look at it. You get a good good impression. Uh, You know, it it couldn't have been better conceived, really.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think um, this essay that you're describing, which is about shopping, compares the experience of something that certainly in Britain we would call a department store, which has kind of echoes of 19th century service culture attached to it. The object is brought to you. But really, this is about control. And then in the latter part of the essay, it explores what seems or seemed to me when I wrote this, you know, a long time ago, um, a paradox that the supermarket, this quintessential symbol of American consumerism, uh, the supermarket was being built in Warsaw in, in the late 1950s. And I think for us, the late 1950s through into the early 60s, I mean, perhaps broadly, the Khrushchev period, is, has been particularly interesting because all sorts of models and propositions... Were being, um, were being developed and offered in that moment. Um, I think a kind of sense in which something like a kind of an experimental culture starts to emerge uh, amongst artists, architects, and designers to try and rethink some of those questions uh, about you know, perhaps the role of objects or the role of spaces. And quite often those artists and designers are not entirely antagonistic to the, um, to, to the communist project. They, they see themselves as being reformers and attempt to, uh, somehow, to somehow bring back uh, the, the modernity that had somehow been squashed or, or extinguished during the Stalin years. So I think this, this, sort of, this period has been um, really at the, at the heart of the books, even though the essays very often explore a kind of longer periodization and, and the ramifications of those, those new ideas. Would you agree, Susie?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes, so, I mean, the, the 1950s and 60s are, are really very much the heart of, I think, both our interests initially. And although uh, I'm certainly interested now in moving forward into the 1970s because, because, because there has been a lot of work done now on the 50s and 60s, but it's a fascination with that, with exactly, as you say, I mean, it's a, a renewed uh, utopianism, uh, a, a new optimism um, around ideas about the possibilities of technology and science uh, and uh, but also about the possibilities of marxism uh, the idea of emancipation and uh, um, and of the role of the material environment in that and i think that's one of the things i find most fascinating about that period and the way that artists and people involved in the uh, material and visual environment uh, were debating those those issues and trying to uh, really think through ways that they could begin to make them a reality um, going back very often reviving the ideas of the immediate post revolutionary period the 1920s yes
0: yeah though that, that did, has come out to me as well that you know that the centrality of the 50s and 60s i, I, I even in another work that is not touched with this book i you see that again that, that really that it's all—it's now perhaps a bit of a cliche, but in that period of the Khrushchev there there are a lot of people who believe that communism is reformable, uh, that yes. it can be re, that it can be reshaped and is a superior way of actually organizing the world. Uh, and it's I, I, again uh, to go on to another cliche. Uh, is it's not surprising then that the. the our East German, the, our articles in East Germany, which are focused actually I think primarily a lot on the 70s, uh, yeah. are a place where that idealism is still resonating. Where the, yes. you know, where the people, you know, everyday people are still t- expressing faith in socialism, saying socialism should be this way. Socialism has to take care of the land, which is I think, uh, you know, getting to this breaking down of conventional wisdom which treats the uh, the former Soviet uh, bloc area is completely uninterested in um, in environmental issues. How even you know, in the nineteen seventies and sixties, I believe, you're getting to see that uh, you know people are saying we don't want this here. We want to have some wilderness.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I think um, you're describing obviously this. Uh, there's a kind of there's a whole set of temporal differences between the experiences of these uh, different countries um, and, and different um, regimes, and what you described there for East Germany is really, as far as I understand, not so much the case in Poland. That mm. kind of sense. Of- so
1: I would say it was. Sorry, David, to break in. I, I would say that it was happening in in the Soviet Union, in in Russia, at least that the uh, um, already. Uh, The 60s is a very interesting period because it's a mixture of this, there's still this this striving forward technological utopianism, but at the same time there's beginning to be a very strong uh, ecological and um, retrospective movement, which has different aspects to it. There's a a very conservative chauvinist aspect to it, but there's also um, one which is more about trying to, uh, build new relationships with the past, and that includes uh, an interest in the, in the environment and in historic preservation and in uh, environmental preservation. Well, um, You're right.
2: I, what I meant was this, uh, this sense of space of faith in this project um, continues through East Germany into the 70s, but doesn't really have much strength in holding whatsoever.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And what I think is kind of interesting is when you put um, these different geographies together you get a chance to think about the different kind of phasing and the different temporalities of of, um, of, of these cultures. And that's a great benefit to have uh, these people's republics sitting alongside the Soviet Union. I agree. I think we tend to, you know, and I confess, you know, I got
0: into my, my interests began with a desire to stop seeing, Pol- in my case, my uh, Poland, as simply an an appendage of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I have now for many years come to believe that we need to, by incorporating the Soviet Union in a a class on on Eastern Europe, we actually get more Mm -hmm. than if we just limit it to Eastern Europe. Because, and, you know, that that is precisely right. Because you're seeing the different trends and how they interact with each other, uh, which gets to, you know, if there's any place where we see those two converging, it's in Paula Bren's piece on, um, in the most, in this book on luxury, on the two different images of the shopkeeper. Mm -hmm. uh, Who, you know, one in the, who's uh, kind of radicalized in the Prague Spring era and then the other dutiful hard working uh, shopkeeper in the in the um, uh, uh, in, in the Hosec era mm-hmm. it's, it's absolutely it's, and the way that both were right in their time
2: yeah she does this extremely well and you end up with I mean, in some ways, they're sort of caricatures because they emerge in the context of television and soap operas. But within a caricature, there's a, a kind of hot, entire hinterland of politics sitting there that um, Paulino really draws draws out very well. Yeah, it,
0: yeah that, it, it was very well done. I mean, as are so many of the essays here, uh, you know, and, and I do recommend everyone can... Get these books. Get their hands on these books if you want to understand what people, what it was just like to be in these countries. I was reading uh, the part on portion on cars to my father, uh, who was a car nut, mm-hmm. um, and he was absolutely delighted. He uh, d- delighted as I was reading it to him um, uh, to hear about all the things he, he had not known about Soviet culture and cars. I mean, it just uh, it takes us to a different w- way of looking at at that world.
2: Mm. uh
0: we're getting towards the end and i have a couple of questions first i'd like to talk get back to a, an issue you talked some about before which is it is the editorial and collaborative process i mean uh generally when i interview someone uh, about a book i'm interviewing a, a single author they rarely ever acknowledge the editors uh and not that I necessarily asked them to acknowledge the editors. So mm-hmm. perhaps that's the interviewer's fault. But uh, so to have two people who worked on this as editors, although obviously you contributed to the books as well. Uh, talk about that process, the collaborative process. Um, you, know, you did mention that you were you know, helped rewrite a, a, articles, but always trying
2: to keep the voices of the original authors. Uh, talk about that, please. Well, I mean, I could say that um, the... Pleasures and Socialism has a kind of extraordinarily long introduction. Yes. <laughs> it's, um, anthologies, it's a 15,000-word introduction. A lot of collections of essays will often have quite a minimal introduction that simply provides some kind of background and you're into the book. But we really believe that in these books we're trying to kind of gather material and help shape a debate. And so our, our work as editors is partly to contribute to these books themselves. And so if you take that long introduction... It's a kind of um, set of reflections on the scholarship of the last 10 or 15 years. And it's an attempt to kind of sift through the good ideas that come from that and and to put them under some pressure, to test them a little bit. Um, That takes time. So Susie and I will work together and write together. We write usually in sections and exchange uh, those passages back and forth. And I hope in the end that the writing is pretty seamless, that you shouldn't be able to tell what I've written and what Susie's written, because we both sign off these texts and we believe them to be the product of both of our work. And we have that benefit, really, of having, you know, different geographical interests and, and some different kind of expertises, but they should, in the end, seem like a, a one singular object. I hope you agree, Susie. You can yes,
1: absolutely. And, and I mean, there are times when in the, in the process of writing, which... Uh, writing the introduction did take us a very long time. And I think partly because we were trying to work out, out our ideas while doing it, um, that our own ideas were maybe developing as we as we wrote it. And so we, we'd sometimes find that one of us would take a paragraph in a certain direction and then the other one would take it back. We ended up with a kind of seesawing, zigzagging process and had to then sit back and recognise that. And I think that happened actually probably even more, I think that happened even more with the first book. Yeah. there was one point when we realized because we were coming from the different perspectives in my case was looking at the Soviet Union, David looking at, at Poland, that we were meaning different things, and we were uh, we had to really stand back and clarify that and I think that's where some of our insights came from uh, that that process um, and uh, but but it's it's a very productive process the whole uh, writing in dialogue, I think, it, in many ways, it's much harder than writing solo. Mm. Uh, but, uh, but I certainly found it very. Uh, it, it, it took my thinking in new directions.
0: Yeah, I, I have to say, as a reader, I wouldn't be able to say who wrote what. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm, i just just give you that. Uh, I'm you know maybe if I'm not a textual analysis uh, a expert, but uh, I certainly g- got the sense that you know it seems to be desire the desired intent of this of a seamless explanation of the issues that are involved, uh, cool. as was uh, as appears to be the intent here. Um, beyond that. Working with the different authors, I mean you did say m- 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 m-
1: more about that earlier, but did you have anything to add about that well with that we, we tend to we divided up the the work on on individual chapters, uh, though we would both then revisit uh, all of them. But, uh, you know, we'd, we'd worked, in, in, I worked with certain authors, David worked with others particularly closely, so we really got into their particular uh, thought process, as it were, and uh, um, to try and, and work with their texts. Um, and uh, But sometimes we'd hit a, a, you know, really difficult problem and send it to the other one to to try and unravel it.
2: I suppose if I could give a word of advice to any, um, anybody who's thinking about putting together a collection of essays in, the, in this manner, um, the selection of the text from the outset and trying to think about the balance. So in our books, you'll always find geographical range and you'll always find a variety of approaches and um, different kinds of subjects being put under the spotlight. Now, of course, pluralism is a good thing and diversity is a good thing, but more than that publishers, when, they, when they're presented with a proposition like these books, really want to see a book that's been edited in the fullest sense so that it's a kind of intellectual proposition rather than just a kind of gathering of available material. And, of course, conferences are often that. They have a slightly ad hoc feel. So that would be a kind of word of advice if somebody was thinking about embarking on this. Yes,
1: yes, absolutely. And, and one thing I'd say about it is that you're also working, it's, it's the art of the possible. So uh, in areas where you're pushing at the boundaries of what's being done or what's been taught about, uh, you can't, you know, this, uh, this couldn't possibly be a comprehensive study of leisure and luxury. There's all sorts of objects we'd love to have included essays on, um, but quite apart from the size of the book, uh, it wasn't possible because, because there was no one yet working on these particular issues. I mean, for example, it would have been great to have had an essay on perfume. Um, or on chocolate. Um, but because there wasn't yet anything available that was at a um, sufficiently developed stage to include, uh, we had to to limit the scope and the range of, of what we could include in it. So it's also just trying to be representative and open up the questions, um, but without feeling that you've covered it completely. And after all, we want to leave space for other people to do that in future. I actually thank you very much, David, for
0: giving that advice, uh, because one of the reasons I like to do these interviews is to give scholars, particularly, I assume, new scholars uh, who are, you know, sort of working their way through their uh, dissertations and such, an idea of what kind of things they need to do, or even undergraduates, uh, you know, who might happen on uh, one of these podcasts, uh, to think, well, what would I need to do to be able to – Carry on with work in, in this field or that field. Um, what advice? Speaking about beyond the that specific advice about edited volumes, uh, what did you find was most important to you as a uh, as a young scholar? What was and what advice? You know, now that you can look back on that uh, as this a, a somewhat older scholar, mm-hmm. most what is most useful? To help someone get along and and move into the field of East European studies,
1: what would you, Susie? Do you want to go first? Um, I I, I don't know. I mean, I suppose because um, I mean we made our mark with this with the first volume. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean that's certainly very very useful. I mean one thing I, I found um, particularly valuable with the first volume was that it it was disseminated quite widely. In Central and Eastern Europe, um, quite early on, partly because it was available as a cheap paperback, so it was very accessible um, and that was really very important, I think, because it then meant that it was it meant it was used, it was taught, and it began quite quickly to uh, get drawn into the uh, scholarship that was beginning to be produced uh, from quite an early stage.
0: I was actually quite surprised when I got my copy of Pleasures and socials to find it. It was hardcover.
1: Yes, yeah. that. that uh, I, hope this, uh, the, I hope it won't always be. I hope it will become available as paperback because it really is important that these are teachable books. That they that it should be possible to to set them to students and uh, um, and and that, that people can can own them and not just borrow it from a library. Okay, so are you
0: leaving this as a, a trilogy, or is this going to become a tetralogy? <laughs> <laughs>
1: There are a lot of people now who are working on different questions that I, I think we opened up in these, in these volumes. So perhaps we don't need to anymore. What do you think, David? I, I probably agree. I mean, uh, it's, it's,
2: I suppose another sort of small word of advice is um, it is really a lot of work to organize yes. um, a book like these three. It probably is quite close in terms of time and energy and commitment Close, so it's not the same, but close to writing one's own
1: book as well. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I, I'd like to emphasize that as well, that people often underestimate the work that goes into an edited volume. And uh, partly because, um, well, maybe a, a conference volume isn't so much work. But, uh, um, but if you really want to shape it, uh, take a concept and develop it and, and shape it in the way that we want it to do, uh, then it's an enormous amount of work. And uh, anyone embarking on it shouldn't, shouldn't underestimate that. Mm-hmm. And what are you now working on, either individual?
0: I mean, I think, it, it, are you doing anything more collaboratively or are you both going in different directions
2: in, in the friendliest way, I, I assume? Um, yeah, there's no collaboration at the moment, but I'm sure we will at some point in the future.
1: Yes, I hope so, yes. Uh, uh, but at the moment, we're both working on our separate projects. I'm, I'm working on, uh, I'm trying to finish a book, which is about homemaking in uh, in Khrushchev, the Khrushchev era. Um, prefabricated apartments so it's about becoming consumers and uh, um, also about the development of uh, um, a sense of taste uh, the relationship between people's practices uh, in homemaking and the prescriptions of authoritative uh, advice. Sounds most interesting and you David? Um, I'm
2: working on an exhibition for Museum Stuki in Łódź in Poland on uh, electroacoustic music in the 1960s and 70s and its relationship to the visual arts. I'm quite interested in cybernetics at the moment. So that's quite a step away from, um, from the books we've been discussing today. Sounds very
0: interesting. I do thank you for making, both of you, for making the time available to be able to chat today about your books. And I do hope that in addition to encouraging people to read these books, that uh, uh, today's talk will inspire a few people to put together equally useful and groundbreaking uh, collective volumes in the future. Okay. So. Okay. Well, thank you. And uh, both to you, David and Susie, goodbye. Thanks. Goodbye. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane. We've been speaking with David Crowley and Susan Reed about their book, Pleasures in Socialism. I hope you'll join us again next week when we speak to another author about their book in Eastern European Studies. Bye-bye.